0: Uh, With me today is Michael McPherson, um, Veterans for Peace to Chapter 92 in Seattle. (coughs) This is the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour on KODX 96.9. You can access the the program also on the VFP 92 website. Today, this uh, topic will be a um, police, or excuse me, veteran accountability and the Capitol Hill assault. I would like to give the uh, statement of purpose for Veterans for Peace. We have having dutifully served our nation do hereby affirm our greater responsibility to serve the cause of world peace. To this end, we will work with others towards increasing public awareness of the costs of war to restrain our government from intervening overtly and covertly in the internal affairs of other nations to end the arms race and to reduce and eventually eliminate nuclear weapons, to seek justice for veterans and victims of war, to abolish war as an instrument of national policy. To achieve these goals, members of veterans of Peace pledge to use nonviolent means and to maintain an organization that is both democratic and open with the understanding that all members are trusted to act in the best interest of the group for the larger purpose of world peace. We urge all people who share this vision to join us.
1: Well, thanks Mike uh, for the intro. Uh, On this show, we're gonna have Garrett Reppenhagen. He's the executive director of Veterans for Peace. Um, He took my place or he followed me um, as I was the former executive director. I've known Garrett for many years. I don't know how many now, but probably 14 or so. Um, He's a combat veteran. Um, um, fought in Iraq as a sniper. And he's really good guy. Um, I was really excited that he was the person that um, followed behind me in Veterans for Peace. Uh, And as Mike said, uh, this show is gonna be about uh, talking a bit about uh, veterans being involved in the insurrection that took place January 6th at the Capitol in Washington, D.C. How there's a disproportionate number of veterans I believe it was an NPR or, or Times, or New York Times, I can't remember one, that um, from their reporting about 20% of the uh, of people who have been um, accused or charged at this point are, are vets. Um, so before we get to uh, um, talking to Garrett, I, I just wanted to read something to you all from the New York Times um, an article I read real quick. Um, Some of the bifurcation of veterans on January 6th stems, experts say, from military's failure to screen out extremists from his ranks, something Lloyd J. Austin III, President Biden's new defense secretary, has vowed to tackle. The problem is we don't understand the full scope of it, said John F. Kirby, a spokesman for Mr. Arson, Austin who last week convened the military chiefs and civilian secretaries of the armed forces to begin intensifying the Pentagon's efforts to combat extremism in the the ranks. Now this part is, I think is somewhat very interesting. Sergeant Gross, who's 50, remembers turning on his police radio in January. The first person I saw was a guy who was dressed like a Viking. And I said, hey, what are you doing guys? Get out of there, Sergeant Gross recalled. Some complied, he said, but others told him, hey, I'm a veteran, I have the right to be here. Sandra Gross said he responded, hey, I'm a veteran and that isn't right. He said it was notable how many veterans were encountered, he encountered and how many thought that they were doing what they were doing was an extension of their service to their country, encouraged by the commander in chief. Now this is a quote from um, Gross, um, Sergeant Gross. The people at the Capitol actually believed they were doing something right, even though we know it wasn't right. And people lost their lives. He said, it was mind blowing to be honest with you. I just wanted to read that because, and we'll talk when you hear the interview, um, just how much um, it was. It's easy to see that a lot of those people thought they were doing the right thing. And it just reminds me, reminds me a lot of us in many ways in that, we use some of the similar rhetoric, and we're doing. We feel like we're doing the right thing, and so how do we really deal with that um, question? You know, uh, helping people see nonviolence, and even the the cause that you're going after, you, you really need to question that. So,
0: yeah, the you know, I went back and actually looked at the actual formal. Uh, actual wording of the oath of of allegiance that every veteran takes and actually a lot of uh, civil servants take too. And it says, uh, I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same and that I will obey the orders of the president of the United States and the orders of officers appointed over me according to regulations and a uniform code of military justice hmm. uh so help me god you know it's possible that some of these vets thought that they were in fact obeying the wor- the orders of the president of the united states who very blatantly urged people to uh contest the election uh, don't believe the election and go down there and protest uh, giving them carte blanche actually to some of them anyway to do what they did and assault the capitol so
2: yeah uh,
0: The actual oath of allegiance is actually in this case open to a little bit more broader interpretation, as in obeying the president's uh, uh, directions of the United States governor, the United States president. So, right,
1: right. uh, And they, and I know I I heard a number of people when they talked to people who participated that said they were invited by the president, yeah, and and they um had the right to be there because he asked them to be there,
0: yeah. Um,
1: So, we turn everywhere we turn. Um, we see that um, former President Trump has great responsibility in in what happened. And I feel, you know, I'm not gonna, I don't feel sorry for those veterans um, um, who participated in the insurrection on January 6th. I think they should be able to discern what's legal and what's not. Um, but I do sympathize, and sympathize with them a little bit, um, being led, misled, uh, because I know to some degree we've been misled about why we served. Um, but you also said you looked up, um, there was a difference between the enlisted oath and the officer oath?
0: Yeah, as I as I understood it, the officer's oath said that the officers were entrusted with the legality of the orders, which is not spelled out with the enlisted uh, uh, oath.
3: Right so that you as an
0: officer are although technically speaking because it says it cites the uniform code of military justice everybody's that's the same rule for everybody and uh but it said that the officers are entrusted with actually making sure that the orders are legal yeah uh with Tata, as you might recall as was referenced earlier um made that distinction so uh, arbitrary in his case because he said he'd go wouldn't go to Iraq but he'd go to Afghanistan <laughs> right and then what Mike's talking
1: about is Lieutenant Watada I'm not sure what what year it was 2004 maybe or something yeah like I was that. hearing
0: the worst of the Iraq uh, and uh, the local guy actually right. he was yeah. stationed here locally and made a big splash
1: yeah. He refused to, to, um, go to Iraq. Yeah. Um, he was officer I said, Lieutenant. So, and, and yes, he did. And I remember that difference vaguely because I took that oath, uh, the enlisted and the officer oath. And I took a civil servant oath, um, earlier last year, cause I worked for the census a little bit. And I take those oaths seriously. Cause, uh, there was even a question where when I was about to take the civil service oath, um, I was concerned about something in it. And uh, I can't remember what it was, but it was something about um, protesting against the government or something. I wasn't supposed to do that. So I asked them some questions and they satisfied, <laughs> satisfied my concerns. So I went ahead and took the oath, but I wasn't gonna take it if it meant that I couldn't get out in the street, um, you know, and, and protest, um, doing the uh, Movement for Black Lives um, protests or other things for that matter. So yeah so veterans many of us take these oaths seriously, and that's why some of these guys decided to um, attack the capital and it's really sad
0: the uh, there you know there's some other liabilities that <clears throat> many u s veterans have or and I consider it a liability and, and one of it is some of them are many of the uh, people that are in the military uh, are southerners they're from the southern states southern um a very much more conservative uh, part of the United States than the rest of the country, much more religious and in a fundamental sense of Baptists and also evangelicals. And um, the military heavily recruits these people. Most of these people are actually are law abiding citizens, but that's another liability that. Uh, young people are coming from a background that's much more conservative than the rest of the country might seem that that they are doing um uh, to not to not to make fun of the phrase but doing god's work you know uh,
1: well i'm gonna have to tell you you describe me i'm a southerner and i'm uh grew up missionary baptist um and somehow uh the values i learned are not the ones that um Motivate a number of these people is not what was taught in my family, right? Um, and I also have to say that when it comes to uh conservatism, you know, I've lived in many parts of the country, and at least when it comes to racism, it's not that different everywhere that I've lived, um, northeast, midwest, or here on the west coast, yeah. And um, one thing I've told people is that at least in the south the people will stab me in the chest. I know who my enemy are, is. <laughs> They're very clear about it.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, when I was in the Northeast, you smile in my face, but you might stab me in the back. So, yeah. you know, so, but I hear what you're saying. I'm not trying to totally just...
0: Yeah, but well, the other difference is, Michael, is that you're a black American. And, yeah, yeah. And the, most of the Southerners are in the military or white. And I ran across this when I was... In, I first got into the military and I was sent as a white... Northeaster, Northwesterner. I was one of three guys, white guys, who went to Fort Polk, Louisiana to a company yeah. of yeah. 200 men who was two-thirds black and one-third white, and they were all Southerners. Wow. All Southerners. Right. Where they told me more than once, he says, I said, I'm from Seattle and Washington. He says, oh, you're a Yankee. He says, no, I'm from Seattle. We don't have any Yankees. He says, oh, no, man, you're a Yankee. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's funny they're confused so (laughs) uh, well we should go ahead and get to uh the interview with garrett um so thank you all for listening and um uh, this is a good interview um so thanks again all right thank you All right, everybody. Thank you, uh, Garrett Reppenhagen, for uh, joining us today uh, on the VFP Chapter Ninety Two Radio Show. Um, Garrett, could you tell me and Mike, and tell our audience a little bit about yourself before we get started on our topic?
3: Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, it's an honor to be part of the show, and uh, yeah, I guess uh, you know we go back a long way. So it's been uh, it's been been an interesting journey. Um, I, uh, I grew up, uh, in a military family, my, uh, both my grandfather served in world war II, Um, and, uh, my father enlisted in Vietnam, um, right out of high school, two of his friends were drafted into Marine Corps infantry and he realized he wasn't going to college and probably was going to get drafted too. And, uh, you know, he was a greaser, a gearhead and liked to work on cars, so he wanted to be a mechanic, um, but the mechanic wasn't available. So he uh, he uh, got to be a combat engineer and went over to uh, Vietnam and uh, ended up working a heavy construction vehicle and uh, they would defoliate with Agent Orange and uh, then his crew would go in there and clear the dead vegetation and level the ground and lay pipe and build roads and whatnot so they're basically playing in contaminated dirt um his entire year in vietnam uh he stayed in career career army um and uh the year he retired uh i was 13 years old he died of Agent orange related cancer the year he retired from the military um so I had a I had an int- interesting introduction into the military, moving from base to base, uh, all garrison life. Um, and uh, I dropped out of high school when my father passed away, um, found sex, drugs and rock and roll and became a high school dropout. And uh, yeah, I was kind of I was kind of stuck in uh, in life and uh, I needed a, I needed a, an opportunity and. You know, I never had a judge tell me uh, to, you know, join the military or go to jail, but that's basically what it was coming down to, uh, in my life. So I just kind of preemptively, uh, joined the military myself one month before September 11th. Wow. Um, which is, uh, impeccable timing, um, because I had, uh, no high school degree. Um, the only branch that would take me is the army. And, uh, I had a juvenile felony on my record that, uh, you know, I couldn't get a clearance security clearance. So my jobs were pretty limited and I chose Calvary scout. Um, the videos of, you know, soldiers on dune buggies and motorcycles, uh, looked really appealing. Um, that was the only time I ever seen a dune buggy in the military was on that recruiting commercial, by the way. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I took basic training pretty seriously, uh, with nine 11, um, and, uh, you know, the word Afghanistan, uh, starting up, um, and, uh, instead of going right off to Afghanistan, I ended up, uh, in my first, uh, duty home duty station was in Vilseck, Germany. And I got to spend my weekends and my four days in different European cities, uh, drinking a lot of beer while all, all my buddies were basically in, uh, in Afghanistan, And, uh, I got sent to Kosovo on a nine month peacekeeping tour, uh, where I really applied myself to be a better soldier, ended up getting invited to, uh, go to sniper school to target interdiction school. Um, I finished that second in my class and, uh, two weeks out of sniper school, I got orders to go to Iraq in 2004. Um, and I was in Iraq 0405. It was a hot time to be there, um, Paul Bremer fled the country and gave false sovereignty to the Iraqi people. Um, Abu Ghraib was exposed while I was there. The first battle of Fallujah when the contractors were hung up from the bridge. uh, The re-election of George W. Bush. The second battle of Fallujah where we leveled the town. And the first uh, congressional elections all were in the one year um, I was in Iraq. Um, I was writing an anti-war blog, which uh, turned me on to the anti-war movement. And, uh, I came back pretty much, uh, ready to rock and roll in the anti-war movement. And, uh, <laughs> I was the first active duty member of Iraq veterans against the war. I joined while I was in, in Iraq on, on my sniper missions. And, uh, yeah, I've been struggling with that experience ever since, but, uh, it's been incredible being part of the anti-war movement and really it's, I, I credit my activism, um, in anti-militarism to uh to me being alive today i don't think i would have survived the the experience of coming home if it wasn't for basically being able to have an outlet to try to do something and change the change the future and change the lives of people and stop americans from perpetrating violence overseas wow that's a
1: um, hell of a story there um mike looks like you want to say something
0: oh no it just strikes a chord to, because i'm a vietnam veteran and uh, the year that i was in vietnam there were 16 thousand americans killed and lots more vietnamese lots more and it's um that experience was sort of reignited watching on the news of course fallujah and i said jesus christ this is just like tet in may 1968 and i had to i had to actually reimagining re-experiencing and I ended up in the VA uh, getting some therapy for that, which actually helped. It's so also I uh, really relate to what you remark about since the anti-war movement in particular for me, the uh, veterans anti-war movement as being an outlet uh, and really a savior, it still it still remains that way. I'm 76 years old and it, some of that stuff doesn't go away, but this camar- comradeship of uh, anti-war veterans is, is really an important part of my life and, and is really Well, almost, I'd say, a lifesaver.
1: Hmm. Back up. okay. So um, before we go further, I thought I'd share some comments from a person that Garrett knows. I think he's one of the reasons that, not the reason, he's in Veterans for Peace. I mean, Garrett, if you could tell us a little bit
3: about your relationship to Klein, Um, David Klein. Um. Yeah, I mean, he was definitely, David Klein was definitely one of the first uh, VFP um, members that I I met and got, you know, got along well with. Um, seems like in the early days when IVAW was, was gathering um, in Philadelphia or really almost anywhere, you know, David, David was there talking to us uh, as a, as a combat veteran. Um, it was easy to relate to Dave, Um and of course we all had alcohol problems. So he was very willing to stay up late in the, in the bars and talk to the young vets all the time. But, um, you know, there's with my father that had passed away when I was so young, um, you know, he actually, you know, had some of the traits that my father did as a Vietnam vet, you know, and, yeah. uh, I saw some of that in him and even some of the problems, yeah. um, that i accepted and some of them were even endearing to me at the time but um david he was always a leader to me he he was always um you know he had a very clear vision of what he thought you know things could be like and uh really fought for them um and uh yeah i i i I usually agreed with him um not always but you know a lot of times i did and uh I thought, yeah, he was just, uh, he was just kind of a no bullshit person. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't believe that he ever, ever lied to me knowingly um, once. Um, So yeah, it was, it was pretty respectable person. So I'm interested in hearing what he had to say.
1: Yeah. So David, just for people um, was um, uh, president of Veterans for Peace um, when the United States invaded Afghanistan and invaded Iraq. He was a a Vietnam combat veteran. Um, And he's the first Veterans for Peace member I met. So he's definitely the reason I decided to join VFP and really this reason I stay in it now because of his memory. Um, So, but the reason I wanted to play this is because he said something that I I believe is relevant to the topic that we're we're gonna talk about with the veterans and a little bit about the police joining the insurrection January 6th in the Capitol.
2: I thought something important was showing <laughs> up. Well, let me start by saying I had a rough night last night. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to do the best I can. You know, I came into the peace movement the hard way through the combat zone, you know. When I was a young man, I was drafted into the Army in Central Vietnam. And I went over there wanting to believe our government's doing the right thing. And as soon as I got over there, they told us, forget everything they told you over in the United States. Can't trust none of these people. They're not really people, they're groups. You know, this is uh, about staying alive. And I did the best I could to stay alive. I got wounded three times in the war and came back. uh, I got medevaced out, actually, after only six months, you know. I I figured when the Viet Cong seen me, they said, look at that big white boy, let's shoot him, you know. And um, when I came back, I felt I had a responsibility to start telling people the truth about what was happening and what our young men and women were being sent to do. And I wasn't even looking at it from the point of view of a political thing. I was looking at it from the point of view that my brother, my buddies from high school were gonna be going in, and they were drafting back in them days, so that's a little bit different than today, but it was still what got me going to it. And. Um, over the years, I've been involved in the veterans' movement for many and many activities. I've worked with homeless veterans. I've worked with post-traumatic stress. I've worked with memorial efforts. I opposed the war in Central America. I opposed the war in the first Persian Gulf War, and now we're back into the same cycle again. So I'm coming here as a veteran of the veterans' peace movement. And one of the things I've learned is that in doing this, is I've done, learned to study the history of our movements. And see, now veterans have always, after a war, had to come back in this country and fight for their rights. You know, this country has, and it may be true of every country, really. It may be true of every country, because when you go to war, you're not fighting for yourself, you're fighting for someone else, usually for rich people. And uh, when you come back, you're the leftover. You know, like we like to say about veterans, they're like a condom you use once and throw away. And um, so the history of this country, as an American, I've studied my country a little bit. And the history of this country, going back to the beginning, is one of veterans standing up for their rights. Shays' Rebellion was a veterans movement. You know, Uh, the Bonus March. The Bonus March was was an effort by the people to get some some help after, uh, during the Depression. But let's also remember the Ku Klux Klan was a veteran. You know, there's nothing in, that makes a veteran's movement inherently progressive. That's gotcha. right. A veteran's movement could be a progressive movement or a fascistic movement. Schmedley Butler, who many of us respect, as one of the great leaders, they attempted to recruit him during the 30s for a fascistic coup d'etat against Roosevelt. Big business trying to do that. So we always have to keep clear in our mind who we are, and what we're fighting for. I think this is really significant because it's easy to get into the veterans movement and not what kind of veterans.
1: movement. So I just wanted to to play that because I feel like those words and where we are right now in this country, um, where we have these different ways of seeing how this country should be, and there's big clashes, not just obviously with veterans, um, with civilians, but veterans seem to be playing um, a larger and larger role in that. So we're having uh, Garrett on the day to talk about the fact that there's been a disproportionate number of veterans who participated in this uh, insurrection in Washington DC on January 6th. So I guess first I'd like to hear what you think about why we have that we have so many veterans? Participate in that.
3: Well, I think that, like, uh, you know, there's a lot of different reasons to join the military these days. Um, obviously, we're not we're not under a draft, so you know, military recruiters have to have a book of one thousand reasons to join, and you know, they're most likely going to find one or two in there that that kind of fit your your particular situation. But I think a lot of people are joining for economic reasons, um, and you know, I think when, when you say that, I think a lot of people think of like, uh, you know, really marginalized communities that are being hit hard, you know, Um, and, uh, you know, there's another facet of, of the American reality where there's a massive kind of white disenfranchisement that's being felt. And, uh, you know, they're in communities where they have uh, a strong already uh, strong belief in nationalism or, you know, pseudo patriotism and, uh, you know, these kind of Christian identities, um, these, uh, respect, uh, for the military and usually a tradition in their families of military service. Um, and they're joining the military too. Um, and, you know, they might be joining for a lot of these other reasons, but they're also joining because of economic reasons. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, when I joined, when I served in the military, you know, eventually I kind of woke up to this betrayal that I was being used. Right. And that I was being sent to war and that this, you know, this nationalist myth and this idea, this glorification of warrior and hero worship, um, really was just kind of a tool, a sociological tool to perpetuate war. And, uh, and I was being used in that. And, uh, you know, I was being used by our military industrial complex and by, uh, the goals of individual, uh, politicians. And, um, you know, we all bought into this, this massive lie, this myth. And, uh, you know, when you wake up, when you start waking up to that, um, there's a lot of anger, the sense of betrayal. And I think a lot of our, a lot of our military service members are feeling this betrayal, but they might not be able to voice exactly what it is, where they were betrayed, what the lie was exactly. But there, there is an undeniable sense that they've been screwed over. And, you know, if you have organizations like the proud boys and the oath keepers like snatching these people up and filling that gap and and providing those false answers and only really doubling down on that, that myth and that lie. Um, You know, you know, it it makes you feel good. It makes you feel like you're part of a community. Um, It's utilizing your military training and uh, you get to play with the same military hardware and, you know, military tactics and uh, you're well-respected in these communities because of your military experience, because there's a lot of weekend warriors in, in these militias and groups that uh, you know, really um, idolize and support our, our veterans and service members. And uh, it's, it's, I think, intoxicating for a lot of people to get involved with that. And uh, you know, I think that it's you know, like David Klein was saying, there's a lot of fascist movements throughout history if you look at them uh, the, the, the major insurrections in modern history, um, you know, all the way from Benito Mussolini, uh, to, to Franco in, in Spain to the Beer Hall Putsch in, uh, Germany. Um, you always see a presence of these military veterans, um, being organized and, and, uh, instigated into, into taking action. And, uh, You know, I I think that's no different than today. Um, So you're going to see this polarization of veterans who kind of wake up and steer towards organizations like Veterans for Peace, or they're going to move in the direction of these kind of fascist, um, you know, racist uh, groups I mean, the majority of veterans don't take a side at all, you know, I mean, the majority of veterans are trying to start their careers and their families and get on with life. And, you know, they may still somewhat support the idea that they served in the military, but it's not, you know, it's not how they open conversations with strangers, you know, Uh, most of them just want to want to get on with life and, and, and move the hell on. So I think it's, I think you see kind of these, these two extremes that kind of uh, manifest, and we saw we saw the veterans showing up in in J six at the Capitol. Right,
0: right. You made some important points, and one of them is that you know the deflection of uh, well, deflection of being not having to look in the mirror as a veteran, especially ones that have gone to a war, and have any sort of responsibility or or reconciliation with that and use that deflection to go into justification of um, uh, nationalism or, or something like that. The hardest thing that I've, I've found, and I think one of the hardest things any veteran has to do is, is to come back and look in the mirror and say, what did you do? What did you see? And I felt like uh, you do, and I think a lot of other veterans do, especially in war veterans, you've got an obligation to tell the truth. And if you're not willing to tell the truth, or you can't face the fact of what you did or supported, then it's easy to go into these nationalist uh, right-wing sort of uh, tropes and blame somebody else instead of blaming your superior officers and your politicians who sent you there in the first place, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I guess I wonder um, how, what do we do? Well, first of all, let's let's, let's understand that these veterans, just like us, I think, feel like they're doing the right thing, you know? Um, I've said before that if Trump had won, um, I could see myself and maybe you two, especially Garrett being Executive Director of Veterans for Peace, um, we might have surrounded the Capitol in a peaceful demonstration, Um, or maybe the White House, probably not the Capitol. We were surrounded the White House calling for him to leave I mean because people were like super fed up on the left you know with him right so there would have been probably thousands and thousands of people there and we would have been figuring out logistics and stuff just like um these people did for the insurrection the difference the biggest difference I think would have been that other than our own beliefs you know uh, would have been we would have been peaceful we would have had to deal with the national guard and everybody coming at us we probably would have had to deal with this with those insurrectionists coming at us too so we would have been getting it from the government and and the insurrectionists um so the point I, i'm making is that we all believe we're doing the right thing so how do we as especially as veterans how do we reach which really our comrades you know some of them I'm sure fought in the Gulf war. So 30 years ago, they were getting back or they were still there, just like me, you know? Um, So what, what do you all think? What, what, what we do and what is Veterans for Peace doing, if Mm -hmm. anything about it?
3: Yeah, it's, those are great questions. I think the whole, whole world is trying to, you know, figure out exactly what, what what do we do? Right. Um, You know, I think that, I think that organizing and, and mass movement and protest needs to continue. I think like the BLM movement needs to continue. Um, you know, I you're, you're right that, you know, these folks obviously think they're doing the right thing. And, you know, Timothy McVeigh thought he was doing the right thing. He was a yeah. cavalry scout, just like me, you know, yeah. he came home, he was radicalized. He feel he felt like he was betrayed, you know, right. Right. he went off to serve his country and uh, he comes home yeah. to, you know, Ruby Hill and, 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 Waco and all this stuff. And he feels like, yeah, well, there's, you know, there's, there's a rise of this, you know, authoritarian, uh, go- government inside the United States and he needs to do something about it. Right. Um, so I, I feel like you don't do those sorts of things if you don't think that you're, you're righteous in your actions to do them, whether you're misguided or not. Right. Um, well, what do we do about it? Um, you know, we got to continue to organize. I think that, um, you know, I th- Veterans for Peace right now, we're, we're still kind of trying to figure out exactly what we're going to do. But I've been in some talks with some organizations that have mostly been involved in uh, gathering data so I could try to work with that data and figure out a solution. Yeah. And uh, at this point, I've cross-referenced areas within the United States that have had an uptick in politically or racially motivated violence and uh, have a large um, population of military veterans in those communities. Mm. And we have strong Veterans for Peace chapters and members ready to lead. But I think, you know, I don't want to be reactionary. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I'd like to do is create some sort of upstream response. Um, to do community organizing and community education. Uh, a lot of it, I hope, can be centered around uh, high schools and, and schools where we could provide information from a military veteran perspective on, you know, why these things are wrong, you know, and, and why those attitudes are misguided. And, uh, you know, hopefully that if we can make some some impacts in some test communities f- first – you know, and, and the thing is, it's not sexy, you know, it's not, it's not the performative um, activism that we see a lot of times, Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's going to take time to have slow, you know, and it's going to be slow results. And the people that we touch and impact each, each day are going to have to grow and continue to, you know, learn and continue to be uh, awakened by other experiences and, and other sources. But hopefully we could help spark that that path or continue it for certain people where, you know, we're looking at moving the next generation, um, into a space where they're not so, uh, susceptible to being recruited by these ideas. Um, and that's, that's what I would like to do. You know, obviously I'm not going to stand by, um, and see folks get hurt. So we'll probably mobilize during, during certain times if, if, if we need to, but, um, yeah, it's, you know, and we got to keep fighting against the racism that is emerging from a lot of this, you know, it's these, this make America great again is that's a racist statement. Um, and people, people aren't seeing it like that, but that's, that's how I see it. And, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of this stuff is being motivated by racism. The wars abroad are being motivated by racism. Um, our, our inability to to solve our simple um, problems here at home uh, with adequate resources and safety nets for populations of people, uh, our inability to organize around them is because of racism keeps us divided. And um, you know, I think if we continue to to support the movement for Black Lives and the racial justice uh, movement, I think that. We can also solve all these other issues that people see, uh, don't see how they're connected, but a lot of us see how interconnected they really are and really are the same issue. Um, so we keep we keep working on that.
0: Right, right. Mike? Yeah, uh, I agree with everything you said, of course. Uh, I think the, the, the biggest advantage that Veterans for Peace has Compared to some of these other organizations, is, is that we are are a nonviolent, peaceful veterans organization. When we're out there in the streets, we're not, for the most part, carrying guns or threatening our fellow citizens, and that's that's a huge difference. and And our pledge of nonviolence is, is a uh, is an important leadership role that we play in the uh, in the antiwar movement and the progressive movement. And you know. Um, the idea that you could come back and threaten your fellow citizens, either intimidate them with firearms or or actually assault democratically elected uh, representatives of the government is is, uh, is anathema to us and and, uh, and our objection to that sort of thing as veterans is an important voice, is really an important voice. And you've probably all been in a situation where you said, uh, I've, I've had this experience in schools and you say, uh, as a veteran, an anti-war veteran, veteran for peace, and they thank you for coming in. And this is right, right in front of the recruiters' tables, you know, and people understand that stand the understand the point of view of the, of uh, veterans for peace and what we're talking about as opposed to militarism and what what basically military recruiters represent. They understand we have to keep going forward. With this absolutely, and, and it's it's I think probably more important now than anything, any time in the recent past.
2: Mm.
1: Mm-hmm. So um, Representative Ruben Gallego, I believe that's how he says his name, a Democrat from Arizona. Um, he's also a, a veteran. Um, he's called for revocation or the taking away of, of VA benefits from the uh, veterans and active duty members who were part of the insurrection. I just wanted to get your, uh, you all's thoughts on, on that.
3: What do you, what do you think? <laughs> no, I, I mean, all these, all this reaction to this stuff, oftentimes um, it's, it's built up in the context that it's going to hurt these people that are on the opposite side of us. So it's okay. But usually these things turn around and bite us in the ass. Yeah. Uh, most of the laws against any sort of like uh, domestic terrorism that is aimed at the KKK or, you know, supremacist groups, oftentimes are reused and, and, you know, reskinned to hurt marginalized communities and uh, people who are already vulnerable. Um, So, you know, they, they do this to, to these folks who stormed uh, the Capitol during J six. And then during a peaceful protest, I lose my benefits, um, you know, someday for, you know, trying to, trying to stop war. Right. Right. Um, So all, all this stuff could be a, a pretty dark tool. If, if, you know, if you don't see the wider picture of, of how they can be applied, um, you know, do I think there should be repercussions to these people who stormed the Capitol? Sure. I do. Um, you know, probably not all of them. I bet, you know, many of them who, you know, went through the broken door after got broken down were just, you know, along for the party and, you know, might not have had some, some dark intent, but I, I really am thankful that folks like Ilhan Omar and um AOC was not in that building, did not get, you know, those people did not get their hands on them. Right. Um because I can only imagine like the the horrible things that could have could have happened. And um, you know, it's I I my imagination goes there. Perhaps that's that's not what would have happened, but that's that's I mean when you get that riot mob mentality um it seems like anything is possible yeah i totally agree mike
0: My- yeah uh, well for for starters i think anybody who puts on a uniform and or whether to pick up a gun or not you're entitled to those veterans benefits and you, you shouldn't be, be t- taken away even if they turn out to be right wing that's uh you know you you've you've The deal is with you and you join a military you get some benefits out of that including health health care and that's not something you should be taken taken away from you you know but these these are some of these people are the ones that were violent they can prove they were violent charging conspiracy against some of these people is going to be very difficult but there's trespass and and uh, probably is a conspiracy and i agree with you some of these people were willing to do bodily harm to these. uh, uh, people that they didn't didn't agree with i mean they they only by just a hair managed to squeak away with the with the bags with the actually the election tallies before they got their hands on them. right not that that would have really changed everything a long one but it would have severely fucked it up yeah so
3: yeah i want to go back to something you were you were saying mike about losing the benefits um you know really really these individuals were put in the situation where they have these beliefs that they're doing the right thing by storming the Capitol and trying to, trying to start an insurrection. They have that because of, you know, because of some, some way I'm sure because of their military service and the same nationalism that has prompted them to feel like a hero for joining the military. um, This, this, like this, Really, radical fervor that is is a national problem. You know, it's it's our Veterans Day, it's our Memorial Day, it's you know, it's the you know jet fighters flying over Super Bowl games, and you know, it's it's the recruiter commercials, it's the war movies. You know, all this all this crap um, has built up this person to want to join the military, and then after the military. Cons- continue the radicalization that really has started ever since they were a child by, by the institutions and systems that we've built in this country. And, and then you're going to punish them by taking away their benefits after they served in the military. Yeah. Um, that just seems uh, it seems horrible to me, you know, and I don't, you know, I don't agree with what they did, but I, I do think that some responsibility has to come down to the systems that we have and the institutions we have, and not just on the individuals, you know, we still have like uh, Charles Garner and uh, Lindsay England are the only two people that ever served time for Abu Ghraib, right? You know, an E5 and an an E6, right? Or an E5 and E4, I think, um, were the highest ranking people that, you know, that took the fall for that. When we know it's like a systematic problem and we know that there's greater sociological problems with why this thing in, in, you know, the Capitol happened. Um, but why we're not going to take responsibility as a society. We're just going to blame these individuals who actually kicked down the door. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, we don't have much time. I just want to um, comment a little bit, push back uh, just a little bit um, because I know, like myself and, and you all too, we were propagandized in the same way, yet we didn't do that and we're not going to do that. Um, we were going to resist in a different way so we can't just say that the system created, I mean, of course it created them, but there's some other piece to it or, and or you know, everybody that went through it would be more similar. I mean, cause we're like totally opposite of them in many ways, right? Um, so, I, and I don't know exactly what that is. Um, it can't just be, mm-hmm. um, obviously racism plays a huge part, but at the same time, you two are two white guys that were brought up in a racist society and you're not agreeing with them, you know? So, so there's, I'm, I'm not exactly sure I need to think about it some more. I agree with you though, that um, unless they are able to charge, cause, cause I was reading the article about taking their benefits away and there are some specific uh, laws about taking away Benefits and like if you're found guilty of treason or something. So maybe if they're found guilty of some very specific things. But generally, I don't think any veteran, like you all said, no veteran's benefits should be taken from them. Um, so I, I, I totally don't think they should do that. Um, but I, I, I do want to kind of distinguish between, you know, some people, the nationalism and stuff, there's two sides to that. The nationalism is like a two-edged sword. For some people like myself, I have some nationalistic uh, ways about myself and I try to look at the, the good things about America. Or as I've said, we have two tendencies. We have a tendency of oppression and we have a tendency of freedom. You know, um, We have a tendency to expand freedom and we have a tendency to clamp down to more oppression. We have both of them, they were right from the beginning. Um, so I feel like I'm in the camp of trying to expand freedom. You know, so I'll rave the flag saying, yeah, I'm not going to let you have this because I think this flag can stand for freedom. You know, I'm not mad at the people who don't like the flag because I understand as as an African American, I mean, (laughs) slavery in this country and the flag flew over that longer than the Confederate flag flew over slavery. So it'd be foolish of me to try to just whitewash the American flag. Right. But I just wanted to say there's this dichotomy. And I think. In order for us to be effective, we have to acknowledge that dichotomy, um, or we'll just be talking to ourselves. Um, and I think we have to use some of the language because they're using the language, so we have to use some of the language in order to pull them in, you know, in order to get to them. Because if we just use our rhetoric, that's exa- one of the things. You know, they're always talking. about, I read a, 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 after one of the articles. You know how they have the comments line there was all these people bashing liberals and, you know, it's just like crazy. What's wrong with you? Why, why? It's it's almost like Republicans and liberals are Martians and Venus, people from Venus and, you know, Republicans and Democrats, you know, and it's, that's crazy. So I just wanted to, you know, just give a little bit of a slightly different perspective on, on that.
0: Uh, you know, just getting back to some of the things you mentioned about being the, the issue being hyped and, and uh twenty or thirty years ago, all veterans were not considered warriors or heroes. They are now <laughs> those those terms are so routinely used as to be nauseating. Yeah. I mean, you know I was a draftee, I enlisted enlisted, but I never thought of myself as a warrior. That's kind of a recent thing. What the hell does a warrior mean? And then a hero. You know, you're a hero. So I don't think that most veterans actually think that of themselves either, a matter right. of fact. But that's the sort of the hype, uh, political hype. But, uh, uh, I, I often wonder, says, you know, these people who are actually doing this, assaulting on the Capitol and others. I wonder how many of those people were actually in a war and actually, or saw a war or combat veterans that are willing to do this sort of thing again. Cool I don't question. think very many. Don't very, think very many people who had any experience with a war would be willing to do that. Right. Uh, I, I don't have any statistics about that sort of thing, but that's my feeling.
1: Yeah. I think the warrior and the hero thing is an offshoot from the Vietnam War, and this overcompensation for how Vietnam, the 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 myth of how Vietnam veterans were treated, and certainly because um, there was not like a big parade or anything, of victory for them. <laughs> yeah, like uh, like like, a, like
0: like a parade would make things all better.
1: I know, but <laughs> you know, it gets back to the what you what we talked a little bit about the propaganda propagandizing us people to want to join. And, and when we got back from the Gulf War, so this 4th of July, actually I was in D.C. and there was a big parade. And part of the reason for that parade was, at least is what we were told, is because um, there wasn't a parade for the Vietnam veterans. So they had a big Gulf War, welcome home, we won the war, <laughs> you know, well, type of celebration, July 4th, nineteen ninety wine, I guess.
0: At Lucky point. you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I was visiting my mom. I, I, they yeah. didn't send me there. So, <laughs> Well, Garrett, before we wrap it up, do you have any, any, uh, any comments you want to share?
3: No, I think this is uh this is a big discussion and we need to keep having it in as many circles as we can. And, you know, there's a dichotomy, but I think it's even more complex than that because, yeah. you know, there's, there's, there's two sides and then there's all the gray area in between, you know, and, um, we oftentimes, you know, I think this, uh, the liberal Republican kind of, um, dichotomy that you mentioned is, is polarizing Mm -hmm. and it, it is making, um, it is moralizing violence more, more and more every day, right. Because you're on this other side, um, just because you're you're you label yourself or or the way you voted in fact even if you're not even like considered like a democrat right right or a republican the way you voted uh justifies violence against you because you're not only are you wrong in in one individual issue you have to be uh you know morally bankrupt and, and a bad person because you voted this way right and and since every issue now is partisan mm-hmm. um you know all it takes is is one thing for your your beliefs to be exposed to have you pigeonholed and stereotyped into this category that now you you know you know you can be victimized and you know with violence and and that violence is justified because of how you voted or how you believe in one issue. So you know, we got to dial that back. Yeah, Like just the moralization of violence has to be dialed back. And it's, it's, you know, and I think that takes a lot of conversation and hard conversation that doesn't happen in silos with, you know, all the Facebook friends that you have left. Cause you uh, <laughs> defriended everybody else, you know, that has to, has to be a community discussion, um, you know, in, in your neighborhoods with neighbors who don't see the same way as you do. Um, you know, but when we, we start helping each other out again, despite those differences and realize we're all human and most of us want the same things, um, you know, we can get past that, I think, and, and roll back this hatred that we have, uh, for each other. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. Oh, we're just, closing.
0: just a quick, is, is that, uh, we're, we're in a unique position because actually, I've had, and you guys have had, I'm sure. A conversation with veterans that you would consider right wing, mm-hmm. if not potentially violent, but because we're veterans, we can talk to them, you know, right. as long as it's uh, and I've had those conversations with people who were actually considered me a traitor, but you could still talk to them without uh, you know, too much judgment, that sort of thing,
1: yeah,
0: uh, and That's right. explore the issues and actually explore the things that we have in common, right.
1: All right. Well, again, thank you. Thank you, Garrett. And um, we'll be talking to you again. Have you on the show. All right. Peace, friends. Thanks, Garrett. All right. Well, that's it for this month. Before we go, let me give credit where credit is due. The theme music is untouchable and the transition music to the interview is Spanish Winner, both by The Passion Hi-Fi. You can find his music at thepassionhifi.com. Thanks again to our guest, Garrett Reppenhagen, Executive Director of Veterans for Peace. We really appreciate him taking the time to come on the show. And of course, thanks to my co-host, Mike Dietrich. Remember, the show airs and streams every fourth Wednesday of the month, 6 to 7 p.m. on KODX 96.9 FM Seattle. And you can find that at KODXseattle.org slash Seattle BFP. That's where you can find... um, episode thank you all out there for listening tune in next month and until next month power to the people power to the peaceful